We are merely flies on the wall of the rich pageant of a life that is Neil Ratner, the rock doc. All right, so you've Thanks gone. For that that was very nice. No, it's true. <laughs> I'm 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 stunned at what I'm hearing. So you've gone through uh, a career in rock and roll, including tour manager for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. You're now a physician, a doctor. How do you meet Michael Jackson? So uh, I'm finishing my anesthesia residency and trying to decide what I want to do as an anesthesiologist. Where was that? This was in New York. Okay. Uh, actually, Beth Israel Hospital. And I, I, uh, I decided that I would create, help to create the specialty of office-based anesthesia. I knew doctors wanted to operate in their offices, um, but anesthesiologists were not willing to go into the doctor's office and give anesthesia. They were afraid. They didn't have hospital backup. The drugs were not really geared towards office surgery. The monitors weren't geared towards office surgery. But I was a rock and roller. I had a different level of experience. And based on that, I felt that I would be successful in that field. So I came up with a plan and I, I uh, went through with the plan. And, and basically the plan was based on a little something I read in page six of the New York Post, page six being the gossipy page of the New York Post. And I read that Michael Jackson had gone to a certain uh, reconstructive surgeon who happened to work in the hospital, and it was his favorite New York guy. In the same hospital that you were Same hospital in. that I was finishing my residency. Um, now, at the time, I was not at all interested in Michael Jackson. I was interested in creating an, a career in anesthesia. But I knew if somebody of the caliber of Michael Jackson was going to this plastic surgeon, this was the guy that I should go to. He would have the right profile. His patients would love it if he had an operating room, if he had an anesthesiologist. And so I approached him. Right, privacy. I, privacy, exactly, privacy. And, and you know, it was important to me that these were successful doctors so that they could create a safe environment for me to work in you know i'm you know i, I wasn't going to just work in a treatment room i had to take a treatment room and make it into like a hospital operating room so that i would be comfortable there so he bought it hook line and sinker and i created a very successful practice and then a months later michael jackson happens to come to no the eight, office? Years later, eight years eight later eight years later that was in that was in 1985 1986 Wow. So wait, the, so he was like Michael Jackson then. He was like Michael Jackson then. I yeah, mean, you know what I'm, I mean, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no. He was he was mega huge, mega, mega, you and know. And he was just starting to get into reconstructive surgery. Like that was a part at, you at know, that time he was the way just he got to, to the guy in New York, the guy that I worked with. The guy in New York was buddies with the cosmetic surgeon that Michael used in California. Uh, and so when there were patients of the California guy in New York, particularly celebrity patients, he'd call his buddy and he'd say, do me a favor. Can you see him? Can you this? Can you that? And so that's how Michael ended up in that office in New York to begin with. So eight years later, he contacts you and says, what, I'm looking just for a doctor? No, no, no. How, eight happened? years later, and this is actually the first chapter of the book. Eight years later, um, I get a call, uh, which was not unusual, from the plastic surgeon to tell me about a special patient. You know, in, in plastic reconstructive surgery, particularly in New York City, there were a lot of celebrities. Mm. And so 
invariably, the surgeon and I would talk before a celebrity came in, just so that we were all on the same page and we knew who was coming and if there were any problems and whatever. So it wasn't unusual for the surgeon to call me to tell me we had a special patient. But he played a little game with me. Don't you want to guess? Don't you know? And finally I got fed up with his stupid little game and I said, hey man, who is it? And he said, Michael Jackson. And I thought to myself, well, 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 after all these years, <laughs> he's actually coming back to the office and I'm going to get to meet him. Wow. And, and, and that's how that it like? happened. Now, with patients prior to office surgery, uh, it was our practice, it was my practice to call the night before, you know, and talk to them, make them comfortable, find out their medical history. And I had a little routine that I went through anyway, because I tried to create a unique experience as an anesthesiologist. My attitude was, why do I just have to be there to facilitate the surgeon? I have an interesting cabinet filled with medications. If I mix those medications carefully, right? And, and the other thing which I tried to introduce was headphones. It was in the days of the Sony Walkman. And I realized that if I use the right medications and I put headphones on a patient with special spiritually uplifting music, I could create a unique experience in the patient's mind apart from whatever the surgeon and was doing. And make them relax because everyone's Absolutely. so stressed out with Absolutely. anesthesia. And I had done a little study when I was an anesthesiologist showing the effects of music and how music can make people more comfortable, use less drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Do you remember what you put in Michael Jackson's earphones? You know, do I remember? I don't remember, but I do remember he asked me if he could bring his own music. And I said, not this time. I want, I want you to listen to what I've got, but if we ever do it again, I'll let you use your own music. Because I wanted to be sure it was the right music. So wait, so was yes. this a procedure, like an outpatient procedure? Small, okay. Yeah, small plastic surgery Because procedure. the thing is, you know, that said, I'm just going through my mind, and a lot of times when you're doing any kind of plastic surgery or any kind of surgery, you're not awake. So I'm just saying, obviously, this wasn't that heavy a procedure. Well, you know, in, in office surgery, a lot, of, a lot of what you do is not general anesthesia. It's called conscious sedation. Right. Okay? I've had that. So, so you're not actually making somebody unconscious. Right. You know, they're in a very low state of consciousness, but arousable. And so although they're not awake, they're not asleep, they're in a state where they're suggestible, and if you have the music on, the, there's a part of the brain recording that, uh, recording that part of the experience. And so, uh, even if the patient can't remember it, there's a part of the brain that can remember it and will cause certain biochemical reactions to make it more comfortable for that patient. Mm. And that, that was the idea. And so, you know, Michael and I had this uh, little conversation. And uh, the interesting part of that conversation, uh, yes, I created uh, sleep therapy for Mike and Michael. You know, I was, uh, I was uh, the guy who... who took the propofol and, and created a sleep therapy for him. But the interesting thing was, it wasn't the first time Michael had that medication. Because on that phone call, on that very first phone call, we had a, we had a joke. 
amongst our anesthesiologists. There was a new drug called propofol. It was a great drug. We used it in every case. And we called it milk of amnesia. And <laughs> the first time I spoke to Michael, he said to me, Rat, are you going to use the milk? <laughs> wow. right, we, we actually need to take yeah, a break. Yeah, we need to take okay. a break. But so, we but, are hanging on this. But wait, hang on. That was what year again? This was About, 1994. Okay, so 94. he had been do, dealing with that for so long. We'll be right back with The Rock Talk. Stick around. Feedback. Connecting you with the biggest names in music, past, present, and future. Another day that the posters on my wall have come to life. Volume. Sirius XM 106. All right, so we're back on Feedback. Nick Carter, Lori Majewski, and uh, this fascinating book from Neil Ratner, The Rock Doc. So we just left. Uh, you were had just hooked up with Michael Jackson, had done a little work with him. Uh, you uh, brought up the, uh, the P word, propofol. And I was just telling you off air, I tell you, I've had it once, and I will never forget. Literally, the anesthesiologist, anesthesiologist said to me, count backwards from three. And I swear to God, it was just like three, and I was out. Oh yeah, it's that powerful. It's it, it, it's mind blowing. It was an amazing drug, and I got to give you a little background. You know, prior to propofol, uh, what all anesthesiologists used to put people to sleep was something called sodium pentothal. Truth serum, <laughs> oh. and sodium pentothal was a very difficult drug to control. It it that's severely, the truth serum. Yeah, truth serum. Said, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> There's been a problem with sodium pentothal and uh, executions <laughs> in recent right, years. Right. Uh, you know, because the drug companies don't want to supply it anymore. But at any rate, that's another story. It was a difficult drug to control. It really depressed respiration, it depressed blood pressure, it caused all kinds of bad side effects, nausea, and, and for office surgery, it was a terrible drug. Propofol came into being sometime in the 80s, and it started out in Europe. As an office-based anesthesiologist, I was always looking for new drugs because, again, the drugs that existed were not geared towards office surgery, and I had to adapt them for what I was doing, and it was somewhat dangerous. When I saw the dynamics on propofol, I realized this was going to be an amazing drug. And as soon as it became available, I was one of the first to order it. Uh, and I was one of the first to use it outside of the hospital in operating rooms in New York City. Now, lots of doctors around the country were smart like me. And, and Michael had been going to a very smart uh, cosmetic surgeon out in California who, like me, was smart. And as soon as propofol became available, he began using propofol. His anesthesiologist began using propofol in his operating room. Now, Michael had multiple procedures out on the West Coast. So although it might have sounded unusual for Michael to ask me, I mean, what was unusual is that he knew our little code, milk of and he said, hey, Ratna, are you going to use the milk? <laughs> it was like, it took me back a minute. But let me ask you, because this is interesting. Talking about the propofol, and you were saying uh, a lot of uh, doctors used it in office. Yes. The big rap against Conrad Murray, <clears throat> excuse me, the doctor who delivered the Did lethal talk? dose was that he was using this drug in the home. Right. Not even in a doctor's office. The one thing I kept on hearing from the quote unquote medical experts was that this should not have been administered outside of an operating room. Now, 
because, you know, if anything happened, he wasn't equipped to deal with it. Now, do you agree, disagree? You must have some thoughts on that. Oh, I, I absolutely have some thoughts. Let me just put it in the context of how I would deal with Michael and this, this treatment. You know, if I were going to give Michael this treatment, the treatment that I developed, which worked in my hands, okay, and I am an anesthesiologist, you know, wherever I would do that treatment, you know, whether it was a hotel room or a doctor's office or whatever. Now, let's go back a little bit. I started office anesthesiology, which means I walked into doctor's offices where they had a shitty little treatment room that I had to make comfortable for myself as if it was a hospital operating room. I did that anywhere that I ever gave Michael the treatment. I had full emergency equipment, I had oxygen, I had monitors, I had everything that I needed to make myself comfortable as if I was in a hospital operating room. So I wouldn't necessarily agree with that point blank. I think it depends on the circumstance, it depends on the person. All I'm going to say about Conrad Murray, he was not an anesthesiologist. And, and propofol really should be handled by an anesthesiologist. Was it unusual what I did? Yes. Was it, listen, medications are constantly used in off-label ways. There's nothing wrong with doing that in the hands of a trained professional. And that's what I felt I was. I was a trained professional. And listen, in the eight years that I was with Michael, I did the treatment maybe 25 times. It was not every day. It was not every week. And it was totally controlled by me, not by him. And I had no problem telling him no. And I had no problem walking away if he didn't like what I said to him. And, and I think that was somewhat of a And why would he want it other than, other than when he needed it for, for, for surger, sur surgeries, procedures? We know that Michael was a tormented person, mm -hmm. and he. So you you knew he had trouble sleeping. Yes. So that's why he would. Yes, want we it. we we spoke about it. You know, Michael had the problem that I think uh, a lot of great artists have. His mind never shut off. He couldn't stop it, and he tried other things. He was a meditator, uh, and he would meditate an hour before we would ever go to sleep, so to speak. Um, but he couldn't shut it off. And of course, doctors had tried to work with him, but in classical medical ways, giving him sleeping pills and tranquilizers and, and things which only made him addicted, which really didn't help. So I tried to, you know, what happened was we had become friends uh, through late night phone calls, things like that, and seeing him occasionally in New York. Michael loved to call people late at night. He'd call you three o'clock in the morning, Rat, what are you doing? <laughs> what am I doing, man? It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm sleeping. And you had to have a surgery like a couple hours later. Yeah, 7 o'clock in the morning. I'd have to be in the operating room, and I'm talking to him from 3 to 5 o'clock in the morning or something like that. And he never wants to get off the phone. He wants to talk to you forever. It shows that you how Michael. lonely he was, too. But was wait, so lonely. But we just talked about this off air, too. So, okay, so you just said, like, I mentioned, you know, he's probably, he just seemed like one of these guys that's always tuned into a frequency he can't turn off. That said... I imagine you had the conversations with him saying, look, Mike, you know, what you're getting is not traditional sleep. 
when you're under during the Pro Football. As Laurie said, what other what other uses were there besides the strict procedures? Well, again, the way the way it developed was it was nineteen ninety five. He was in New York a lot because he was gonna do the comeback concerts at the Beacon Theater, which were gonna be taped by HBO with Marcel Marceau as a guest. And they were working him pretty hard. And and he wasn't handling it well. And on, on Thanksgiving Day of 1995, he called me up. I was having Thanksgiving dinner in my apartment here in the city with my parents. And all of a sudden, he called me up. And he broke down, got hysterical, crying, help me, help me. I can't sleep. They're working me too hard. Help me, help me. And so I spoke to some of his other doctors and tried to come up with a way of helping him. Now, again, the treatment was only meant for pre-concert post-concert or pre some really important activity that he would not have done, you know, if he didn't sleep right or or if he took, you know, the wrong drugs or whatever. And so I tried to come up with a creative way of helping him just in those circumstances. But all through the eight years that I was with him, I tried to transition to something else. You know, the idea was not to make this a permanent thing, a temporary transition point to go from where he was to a better place where he wouldn't need anything. But I'm just saying, is this all psychosomatic for him? Because again, it's not sleep traditionally, yeah? It's as much sleep... If, you know, how many people take sleeping pills, right? And they accept that as sleep, right? That's not sleep either. It's it's that same almost sleep. And so, you know, depending on the psychological conditioning, et cetera, et cetera, that doesn't mean somebody can't walk away feeling more refreshed. Okay, okay. Absolutely. Well, talk talk a little bit about how you came to tour with Michael on the Dangerous Tour, because I... I teased it a little bit at the top of the show that that initial day when you came to meet Michael history tour uh, the history tour sorry <laughs> um, the history tour when when you came to meet Michael you had some reservations on that day and this is I in did, the rock I doc did I did okay so I met Michael after the Geordie Chandler thing okay because that was in in the 94 I think and that's when I met Michael one of the, one of the accusers and he had yeah that's the one that him. he ultimately yeah. paid off 25 million dollars I guess was the number or whatever um, and so I was aware of of things I was certainly aware of things the whispers but, and also lawsuits at that point yeah whispers lawsuits whatever um, uh, and Michael and I had had vague conversations about things like that, but nothing serious, okay? And I was supposed to go on the history tour, but through a series of whatevers, I didn't. And finally, they hired me to go on the last leg of the history tour, which was to Africa. Uh, and I had to meet Michael in Florida. He was at uh, Atlantis doing something because he was very close to Saul Kersner and whatever. It's another story. At any rate, I had to meet him in Florida. And I got there a day before and I had to meet them down in the lobby in the morning where we'd pick up the private jet to fly to South Africa. I got there early and I'm talking to another guy, Jerry Anzarella, who's coming on tour with us. And the elevator door opens and there's Michael with a little boy. And I freaked out. It was like, 
who is this little boy? Where did he come from? I didn't sign up for this and kind of stuff. And you're keeping it in mind. You already had heard the whispers. You well, knew about course. the lawsuit. And I knew, and I knew about the Jordy Chandler situation. And I couldn't believe after that he'd even travel with a little boy. And, and don't think I didn't talk to him about it very shortly after that. And we did. We had a major conversation very early in that tour about it. No, don't worry, Rat. It's okay. It's, it's okay. They're innocent. Nothing, but 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 but. But I, but I absolutely, I absolutely believed the whole. He's just with these young boys because he never had a childhood. I I absolutely Look, believe. Look, Michael that. was a man child. There's no question about it. And if you were to see how he acted with them, it was like brothers or cousins. You know, I determined right then. I said to myself, "Whoa, man! You know, what are you getting yourself into here?" And potentially and, you. Well, you potentially could, you don't me as a medical trouble. professional taking care of him. If something's going on, you know, it's kind of my ass. And I was very uncomfortable and very unhappy. And I decided I will be extremely vigilant if I see, smell, think, even have a whiff of something. Not only do I have to stop it, make sure it never happens again, and walk away. And, and, and that was my mindset. And I talked to Michael two nights later. And, you know... Not in those terms, but I made it clear to him, hey, you know, no funny business well, here. Well, listen, we have to take a break, but I would I, I would love oh. to know what what possible, I don't want to say excuse or explanation he could have for that, for being yes. sort of like so pointedly. All right, listen. When we'll, we come back. We'll be right back on Feedback. Stick around. Oof. This is Feedback. Keeping you up to the minute on all things music. This is Feedback with Nick and Lori. Volume, Sirius XM 106. All right, Sirius XM 106, it's Volume. Feedback, Nick Carter, Lori Majewski, and the rock doc, Neil Ratner, who we've been trying to cajole to come back and see us again tomorrow after com- during commercials. We'll work on you because this I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface. I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah. <laughs> so we were talking about um, uh, treating Michael Jackson in a general sense, treating Michael Jackson with propofol to uh, alleviate some of his anxieties and just sort of help him to unplug. And you're on tour with him now. I'm what on is, tour what with is him that now. like? I mean, he first of all, you, you know, when, when you see like the depictions of his life, mm-hmm. it looks like you you just wait for Robin Leach to like do the voiceover. It looks like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. He looks like the Sultan of Brunei. <laughs> and you got to see a lot of that. He took you out one night. Yeah, um, you know, Michael was a close friend. You know, he became quite a close friend, and and as such, he would uh, throw surprises at us wait wait okay so did you know michael or do you know mike because other people close to him have said there are two guys mike mike was just a regular guy he didn't put on that soft baby voice people said it was a put on what did you think first of all i never heard anyone call him mike 
He didn't like that. He was Michael. <laughs> no, not to his face. I'm just saying they talked about the, the dualities of the guys. But, uh, yeah, of course. He was a normal person. People don't see him as a normal person because of the way he was portrayed in the press. Um, well, let's be honest. He was... He's he, behind a little he, of that. He was a lot of the jet fuel behind no, that. No, no, no. Listen. He created an image for himself. He was a master promoter. One of the most interesting conversations that we had was about P.T. Barnum. You know, he said, Rat, Rat, do you know about P.T. Barnum? I said, yeah, he started the circus. He said, no, Rat, he was the greatest personal promoter ever. You got to read his story. Blah, 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 blah. And, and sure enough, he was right. And Michael taught me a lot about personal promotion. Wow. The unfortunate thing is he created a persona and then he couldn't handle the persona. You know, the persona came back to bite him in the ass because he couldn't go out, he couldn't be in public, he couldn't do any of the things that normal human beings do. And in the end, he wanted to be a normal human being. But did you say you're close in addition to having a doctor-patient relationship. Did you ever talk to him about the obvious, I don't know if it's body dysmorphic, but he, he clearly became just almost addicted to plastic surgery. Yeah, he. I believe he did have body dysmorphic syndrome. I think it's a real medical syndrome, and I believe he had it. Of course, we talked about it. Of course, I said no more, man. You know, don't listen to this guy because, unfortunately, in a plastic surgeon world, in the yeah. plastic surgery world, there's always a guy who's going to tell you I could do it better. Don't listen, man. He can't do it better. It's getting worse. No, Rat. He's great. He's great. I'm telling you. Come give anesthesia. You know, people who have it, it's very difficult. You've got to work with them psychologically. Hmm. And, you know, I'm not a psychologist, although as an anesthesiologist, I was a bit of a psychologist. Because you have to be when you're when you're working with people. Uh, Before the break, Nick had asked a really important question. We were talking about you you go to to meet up with Michael Jackson for the first time. He comes out well to go on the tour on the history tour, right? History, and um, he was that he comes out of the elevator with a little boy, and you kind of freaked out when you talk to him about it. Um, it's interesting because Nick and I talk a lot about how 1980s, 1990s, very different than 2019. That That is something that I don't think the public would accept then. Back then, it was still he was still writing the coattails of being Michael Jackson, biggest star in the world. He was able to convince you that nothing was going on with those kids at that time. I don't think it I don't think he convinced me. I think his behavior convinced me. I think watching him with the little kids is what convinced me. I don't give a shit what he said. If I saw something contrary to what he was telling me, I would have confronted him and I would have said, "Hey, what is this nonsense?" But I never saw it. The behavior, listen, I watched Leaving both Neverland. Nights, I yes. watched both nights. It was painful for me. It was uncomfortable for me. I didn't like it because that wasn't the Michael that I knew. I never saw anything like that. I would not have tolerated any of that. I would not have stayed around for one day more should any of that have been obvious to me. But do you believe and, it? But do you believe it? I don't want to believe it. twenty twenty. I, I know, but I don't want to believe it, and it's very, very difficult for me to believe because of the Michael that I knew. That wasn't the Michael that I knew. But as I, I had said, and, and, and I had very there could time. be two hmm? Michael Jacksons. I mean, he's not going to show you the 
pedophile if he was one. He's no, not going to no, show but, that to but you. Let me say this to you, Lori. I was around him with kids, on tour around him with kids. And, and I knew some of the earlier kids who grew up, okay? And no, he wouldn't tell me. But, you know, I'm smart. I can see things. I'm an anesthesiologist. We, we work by observation. Think about it for a minute. You have an unconscious patient. And, and how do you know if something's going wrong? It's a little twitch here. It's a little there. It's a monitor here. We're observers. Yeah, but... But now you observe those two men on, on, on the documentary. Do you think looking at their observations that they're not telling the truth? Just I, think there, I think them. there's a lot of holes in the story. You know, Each particularly with Wade Robson. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you read some of the stuff of what went on with him, uh, and even some of the timeline on Jimmy Sechek. Now, I was not around for either of these uh, young men, so I can't speak from personal experience. I could only speak from the personal experience of, of the little boys that I saw, of the behavior that I saw. See, but here's the thing. But you've also said there was always a lot of children around, and that's fine, but... No one, also, no one said that he, if he was doing anything untoward, he was doing anything untoward with all of them. Do you know? So he could have very easily treated many of them very well and uh, appropriately, but he, it would appear, according to the testimony of these men and others, that he did have certain favorites. So that's no, all no, I'm no. I think I'm you just saying it wrong. No, no, you okay. have it wrong. Correct. Because on on every tour that he uh, had a little boy, it was one favorite little boy so there were a series of them but there weren't multiples on each tour if no no you no understand but hear about what you just said though i on know every I was a favorite every, little boy no, no not even that not even a favorite like you just said on every tour where he had a little boy yes. now i'm just saying take all the sexual innuendo out of it mm -hmm. just how is that in any way appropriate for a, for a grown man? You know, I'm, Look, I'm serious. We, Michael and I had that conversation, and I said to him, "How is that appropriate for grown?" No, rat, you don't understand. They're children. They're innocent. There's nothing wrong. The innocence of children. There's nothing wrong, rat. They're they're just innocent children having a good time, and and you know we'd go back and forth and back and forth. I'm and just say, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Michael, you're a you're a forty five year old yes. man with yes. a lip. No, no, you don't understand. And that was that was definitely a defect in his personality. You know that he felt that because they were children, because there was nothing going on, it was okay. But and, but and, Neil, I understand where you're coming from because actually I believed until this documentary, I believed that. Mm -hmm. I believed there was something weird about him. I don't think anybody else could get away with it. Horrible Michael, judgment. But it, it says exactly. it, we, horrible, we're, judgment. We're horrible judgment. But, you know, in the 80s, and the, I don't know. As someone who would never do that to a kid, maybe I never thought, you know, that he would do it. But I wonder, you knew two of Michael's children. You knew Paris yes. and you knew Prince. Yes. Did you saw him with those kids, right? Yes. Did, was was he different with his own kids than he was with those little boys that came through? He was an incredible father. Stricter than you might imagine, you know? I mean, it was please and thank you. It was dressed properly. It was manners. I mean, he was an incredible father. And I saw him as a father with Prince in Paris. I saw him as a brother or a cousin to the little boys or the little kids that were around. It was a different kind of relationship. It was not 
father to children. It was almost like friends, brothers, younger brother, a cousin. That's the way they related, and that's the way I saw it. Did you, it was a little bit different. Did you ever see any grown women around him? Yeah, Lisa. Okay. <laughs> but I and mean, they had a real they had a real relationship. And Leanne, he liked Leanne. He liked my wife. No, 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 no. I understand. I mean, and I believe, I believe that he at least attempted with Lisa Marie. But I'm just saying, did you ever know him to be in any kind of relationship with any sort of fully formed adult woman? Yes. Okay. Uh, we had a funny experience with him when we didn't even know him uh, with uh, Brooke Shields. I don't know if you remember yes, when he did the whole Brooke Shields oh, and the yeah. kiss, and we we were following him around that night. We were actually in a limo with Brooke Shields' mother. <laughs> it was a it was a crazy story. We didn't even know Michael. I was involved in a different project. I created a company in the '90s called the Dream Factory with a songwriter named Denise, Denise Rich. Denise Rich. Yeah, yeah. I managed Denise Rich. Wow. For a couple of years. Great those stories are outrageous, man. See why he has to come back. <laughs> you got you, you, you got to come back. You've got to come back. If not tomorrow, you got to come back. Some we'll 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 make time this week. All right, let's do <laughs> you that. You got to come back. Let's do that. For Neil sure. Ratner, The Rock Doc, the book. I can't wait to like dig my heels into this it's just the michael jackson pictures alone are just fascinating him with the baby lion yeah <laughs> like he traveled to, to africa with him. by the way i took all those pictures those are my pictures <laughs> wow. yeah, yeah michael and a little child a baby with mandela yeah, yeah the mandela stories are great because you let said me he just, was really uh, close let me just say mandela. if anybody wants a, an autographed copy of the book. They can go to my website, www.neilratnerrockdoc.com. Hit on, on the upper left, buy the book. I'll autograph it any way you want. Also, you'll always you, sell it. Always sell it. If you're into classic rock, go to Neil Ratner Rock Doc on Facebook. I post stories about classic rock. I do videos. And, of course, available on Amazon in all formats. And the audio book is pretty cool because I read it myself. You got to come back, man. You got to <laughs> come back. Seriously. And thank you for coming down from Woodstock to speak with us. My pleasure. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're a madman. So <laughs> you should go and see the rock dog. You're listening to Feedback 